Donald Trump warns it would be dangerous if he were sent to prison. The lead starts right now. Even though the former president's lawyers pushed for a trial to take place after the election, a Trump-appointed judge has now set the trial in the classified documents case for May, after the Iowa caucuses, New Hampshire primary, and Super Tuesday. We're going to hear from inside Trump world. Then, someone's blood, sweat, and tears went into writing that book that you love and can't put down. Now artificial intelligence is taking that copyrighted material, and thousands of authors want them to stop. We're going to talk to the president of Microsoft to find out what he's doing. Plus, his song spanned generations. Today we're going to remember the voice and the legend of Grammy winner Tony Bennett. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start today with our law and justice lead. Mark your calendars. The federal judge in Florida has set a trial date for Donald Trump in the classified documents case, and she is not waiting until the presidential election has been decided. Judge Eileen Cannon today set the pre-trial hearing for May 14th of next year. (coughs) Excuse me. And Cannon says the trial could begin as soon as May 20th. This is a rebuke from a Trump-appointed judge to Trump and his team, who claimed he could not get a fair jury in the middle of an election. Now, there's a chance Donald Trump could already essentially have secured the Republican nomination for president before his trial begins in May. But there's also a possibility that multiple candidates, including Trump, will still be slugging it out. Because on the day of Trump's pretrial hearing, voters in Maryland, Nebraska, and West Virginia will be heading to the primary polls. Republican voters in Kentucky and Oregon will pick their presidential candidate the following week, as the trial is due to begin. And then Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, and South Dakota will have their Republican Party contests scheduled in the first week of June. That's Republicans in nine states, nine, who could be picking their candidates just as the trial is getting underway. Donald Trump, as you know, faces 37 charges in this case over allegedly mishandling classified documents and obstructing the investigation into the documents. Prosecutors say those documents included information about U.S. nuclear programs and the defense programs of foreign countries, and prosecutors allege that Donald Trump stored the documents here in a bathroom and inside a shower at Mar-a-Lago, and here inside the Florida resort's public ballroom, where multiple events and gatherings took place while the boxes were sitting on the stage. Now, the announcement today of this trial date comes as Trump and his team are expecting another indictment, which could come literally at any moment. That is in the special counsel's other investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Let's get straight to CNN's Paula Reid, who's been following every development of these investigations. And Paula, this trial date does not seem like a win for either the special counsel, which wanted December, or the Trump team, which wanted, you know, never. So why did Judge Cannon pick May? Well, the central conflict right now in this case, Jake, is timing. Defense attorneys have said it's too early to even set a date, and they said it would be, quote, unfair to try this case before the 2024 election. The prosecutors told the judge they wanted to move this along quickly and suggested December would be the time they could take this before a jury. And here the judge looked. She split the difference. But the Trump team said today they don't think they'll have any problem pushing this beyond the 2024 election. And it's easy to see how they could possibly do that. Jake, if you look at the judge's order, 
She also included a very detailed schedule with over 30 different deadlines for all the things the lawyers need to do between now and when this would go to trial. And it's easy to see how in this case, as in any other case, some of those deadlines are going to slide. A week or two here, a week or two there, that adds up. And the closer they get to the election, the less likely it is that this is going to go to trial before the 2024 presidential election. Paula, we know the grand jury and the special counsel's other investigation having to do with Trump's efforts to overturn the election. We know that that grand jury met yesterday. What comes next? Well, one of uh, former President Trump's lawyers uh, just revealed, uh, confirmed, in fact, that he did not go before the grand jury, uh, saying that his client, quote, has done nothing wrong. But now that that deadline is passed and Trump has decided not to take them up on the offer to go before the grand jury, an indictment can come at any time, Jake. We expect the next time this grand jury will meet will be next Tuesday. But even if the former president is indicted sometime next week, we know from our reporting that their work will continue. They are expected to interview additional witnesses through the end of the summer. That's not unusual. We saw the same thing in the Mar-a-Lago case. There were indictments and the investigators are still interviewing witnesses and recently sent out another target letter. Paula Reed, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss former federal prosecutor Ellie Honig, CNN's Jamie Gangel, and Scott Jennings, who served as a special assistant to President George W. Bush. Ellie, let me, let me start with you. There are a lot of steps that have to happen before this trial will start. What are the odds that the trial actually happens or begins in May 2024, do you think? Jake, in my experience, I think it's unlikely that this trial actually does start in May 2024. First of all, trials move all the time and they only move in one direction. They don't get moved earlier. They only get moved later. As Paula said, when you look at the schedule the judge set out, there are 33 intermediate deadlines here. If one of them moves, it's a domino effect. It pushes all of them. And keep in mind, this is a defense team that is heavily incentivized. It's maybe their only strategy right now to drag their feet and delay. And then you have the classified documents issue, which further complicates everything. I think the big question here is, are they going to be able to push it back enough that it gets too close to the election to the point where it can't be tried before the election? We're not going to have a trial in October, for example. And I think that's going to be a very close call. Jamie, what kind of impact do you think this might have on the campaign trail? Do you think it could change Republican voters' minds when they realize Trump is is going to go on trial theoretically before the convention even begins? Look, no doubt it's going to play a role in this way, Jake. We're going to see other candidates like Chris Christie using it to go after Trump. We're going to see most of the other Republican candidates twisting themselves into a pretzel to straddle the line between uh, pointing it out and not alienating Trump's uh, base. I I think at the end of the day, it's baked in. This is not a surprise. Republican voters know it's coming. And let's just point out this number. As of this week, Donald Trump in national polls has 54 percent of the Republican base. Right. On the national level. Scott, I want to get your response to this exchange between CNN's Chris Wallace and RNC chairwoman Ronna McDaniel uh, about What happens if Trump is the nominee and he's been convicted? Take a listen. Do you have any problem with the Republican Party nominating a convicted felon? That's hypothetical. (laughs) We're not even close to that. So I don't think we're even there. Scott, do you think Republicans need to start considering what they will do in that possible scenario? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the pantheon of attributes you could have in a nominee for a major political party, being a felon, convicted felon, is not one I would recommend. And so if this were to somehow go to trial in May and be concluded by the time the convention rolled around, I suspect somebody would go to the convention and say, what are we doing here now? Whether that would make a difference, I don't know. Uh, But I'll tell you who it would make a difference uh, for are independent swing voters who are not strong Republicans but have voted Republican, uh, but have shied away from the Republican Party in the last few cycles. This ain't bringing them home. Uh, And uh, if you want to beat Joe Biden next year, an incumbent president, uh, even if he is in a weakened position, this would make it exceedingly difficult, I think. Ellie, what does this trial date for the classified documents case mean for a potential trial in the 2020 election case? Well, it leaves a very narrow window, if any, for the 2020 indictment to be tried. First of all, remember, the Manhattan DA, the hush money case, that's already scheduled for March, and that's going to carry into April. Now you have this trial date on the Mar-a-Lago case. That's going to take May into June. So there, I don't see any way a January 6th indictment gets tried before any of those cases. You'd have to start that in January. That's just not enough time for a complicated case. Then you're talking about, are we going to really have a case starting in let's say July, that's going to carry into August and September of an election. I don't see that as a practical matter. I don't see a judge allowing that. I don't even see DOJ asking for that. So unless something else moves here, I'm not really seeing a ready slot available for a third trial. Jamie, you're you're very well sourced in Republican circles. Do Republicans, you know, think Donald Trump is going to be the nominee? And do they Mm -hmm. think that he'll be able to beat Joe Biden? So just taking into account what Scott just said about independent voters and swing voters, which can make a big difference in this, I will tell you that the Republicans I talked to, even Republicans who are vehemently against Donald Trump, never Trump Republicans, they still right now think he is likely to be the nominee and they think he could beat Joe Biden. Scott, what do you think? Uh, he's the odds-on favorite to be the nominee right now. Uh, but there's some, even some polling out today. His own pollster uh, has a survey out today. They took a big poll in 40 swing districts around the country and found him uh, losing to Joe Biden. So I, I think being the nominee and making that likely to be uh, making it likely that he beats Joe Biden are two very, very different things. And all these legal troubles, maybe they're helping him with Republicans. They are not helping him with independent mm-hmm. swing voters who will decide the next presidential election. Scott, Jamie, Ellie, thanks to all of you. President Biden just pushed the heads of the top artificial intelligence companies to regulate their own products. The president of Microsoft will join us fresh off his visit to the White House ahead. And then he left his heart in San Francisco. The loss today of legendary singer Tony Bennett. The one thing he wanted to be remembered for that isn't his music. Stay with us. Morning, Father. I left my San Francisco. Some sad news in our pop culture lead today. Singer Tony Bennett died today, a few weeks short of his 97th birthday. We've known since 2016 from his family that the singer was battling Alzheimer's disease. Bob Hope discovered Bennett in 1949. He was the opening act for Pearl Bailey in a New York City club. Frank Sinatra called Bennett the best pop singer in the whole world. By the lady. Bennett sang pop, he sang jazz, he sang standards, and he sang duets with almost everyone, including Lady Gaga. She gets 
too hungry for dinner at eight. I'm starving. She loves the theater, but she never comes late. I never bother with people that I hate. That's why this chick is a tramp. <laughs> when asked in interviews how he would want to be remembered, Tony Bennett once said as a quote, nice person. With us now is another pop legend, singer and songwriter, Paul Anka. Uh, Mr. Anka, so good to see you again. You knew Tony Bennett. What was he like, and what will you remember most about him? Well, I've, I've known Tony for a lot of years. Uh, we had the same agent back in the 50s and the 60s, and he, of course, was one of the unique, one of a kind. Uh, he never jumped off of what he believed. Uh, they tried to make him into a pop singer with more commercial songs, but he stuck with what he wanted to do, what he believed he could do, and what was honest. He was indeed a very stylish, nice person, a great artist who had a very stylistic way with a song. There's Sinatra on one side, who, of course, there'll never be another Sinatra, and there'll never be another Tony. And once Tony found his voice and found the kind of groove that he wanted to be in, because he went through a lot of phases in the beginning, when he found his own voice and his own style, then he just took off and he's never left it, even through ups and downs. There were a lot of lulls when I knew him that uh, he had to deal with a lot of challenges. He came out of all of those and then he continued on with the style and what he believed he was and what he was about. And he was very unique that way. What was it like when you performed with him? Well, that was many years ago. You knew you were with somebody that was a champion. Same when I stood next to Sinatra, you knew you were with a champ. You were with one of those dudes that could do what they do like nobody else. You know, everybody's tried to be Sinatra, everybody's tried to be Tony, but they ruined it for everybody standing in front of a band. But when you sing with those guys, you realize you're with real pros, and that's lacking today. You don't find that today at all. He, he really did um, have an ability, uh, one that, that you and Sinatra also have, to, to appeal to generation after generation. How do you think he was able to do it? Well, stay, you know, he, he stayed true to his style. So he uniquely didn't have any competitors. Now, you know, the music scene changed through the years, as it did for Sinatra, as it did for Tony. But he stuck with what he did best and what he believed in. And he always separated from the pack, no matter how they tried to change him. He really did what he did like no one else could. You know, people go, oh, we want to be like Frank, we want to be like Tony. Those voices are genetic. They're all in here. You'll never sound like them. They have that unique sound that's genetic and that style that you just can't copy. So when you stay with it and you roll with the punches as he did, you know, his son did a great job bringing him around for that big ending that he's had for these last few years. It really was deserving to a man who never deviated from what he believed in doing all the time, all the time. In addition to being a, a, a magnificent performer, you're a songwriter as well. From that perspective, what do you think is the perfect Tony Bennett song and, and why? Wow. Well, San Francisco, obviously, was a, you know, they thought it was a domestic hit. His piano player had in his pocket for a while. And, you know, he, one day he played it for Tony. They thought it would just be indigenous to San Francisco. Uh, that's one of them. Uh, the Good Life, I think, is uh, a great representation by him. You know, I tried for years to get him to do, do my way. 
because I loved him as an artist. And he kept saying, I can't do it. That's Frank's song. That's Frank's song. He never wanted to do my way. You know, it's like so many people have done it. That's the one I wanted Tony Bennett to do. But he said, that's Frank's song. But those other two, I think, are very much what Bennett was about. He just sings the hell out of those two songs. Amazing. What an honor to, to talk to you about uh, your friend uh, and, and uh, the icon, uh, Tony Bennett. Paul Anka, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. May he rest. Coming up, thousands of best-selling authors pushing tech giants to stop ripping off their original works to train artificial intelligence. The head of Microsoft will be here next. In our tech lead today, getting tough on artificial intelligence. Today, President Biden met with the heads of seven top leading AI or artificial intelligence companies at the White House. Those companies are Amazon, Anthropic, Google, Inflection, Meta, the parent company of Facebook, Microsoft, and OpenAI, all committed to manage the risks posed by this revolutionary technology in a voluntary basis. A first step, they say, in regulating AI, an effort pushed by the Biden administration. CNN's Jeremy Diamond is outside the White House. Jeremy, well, what did these companies actually agree to do going forward? Well, first of all, Jake, I can tell you that there's a real sense of urgency that's been developing here at the White House in recent months to tackle uh, the challenges posed by AI and also try and embrace the opportunities. And these commitments, Jake, are the work of months of back and forth between these seven AI companies and the White House, which White House officials say are designed to try and make AI products safer and more trustworthy. Uh, Let me take you through some of the key points here. And, And at the very top of the list is this notion that these seven AI companies are committing to outside testing of their AI systems new AI systems before they are publicly released. The second most important thing here, labeling AI-generated content using perhaps a watermarking system so that consumers know what content is actually generated by AI. There's investments in cybersecurity and insider threat safeguards, as well as prioritizing research and the public reporting of systemic AI risks and also specific misuses of AI. Uh, Jake, I spoke with Bruce Reed, who's the Deputy White House Chief of Staff here, who's managing this AI policy process And he made clear that these commitments are a first step. And more importantly than that, he called them a bridge to regulation and legislation. And so this White House basically finds itself in the position where they know that regulating AI is going to take time, in particular through legislation. And so what they're trying to do here is get some commitments from these companies to establish some initial safeguards around all of this. Now, that being said, these commitments are definitely voluntary. There is no enforcement mechanism. And skeptics will point out that uh, the tech industry doesn't have the best track record of regulating itself, nor does Washington of proactively regulating that industry. Jeremy, what else is the White House doing to regulate AI? Well, President Biden uh, made clear today that they are working on executive action. Listen to the president moments ago. In the weeks ahead, I'm going to continue to take executive action to help America lead the way toward responsible innovation. And we're going to work with both parties to develop appropriate legislation and regulation. And Jake, we don't have details on what that executive order will be, but I'm told that it could come as soon as the end of this summer. And there are so many different issues 
to tackle here. Everything from consumer risks to the competition with China over artificial intelligence. Now, there's also legislation in the works. The Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, he has been leading a process to try and come up with a sweeping bipartisan uh, regulatory framework for AI. But one thing I will note that Bruce Reed told me is that these uh, the outside testing, for example, of these systems, that could potentially lay the groundwork for how regulation works here. That uh, outside testing in the future could potentially be done by some kind of government regulator or licensor, uh, but they are starting to look ahead at those possibilities. Jake? All right, Jeremy Diamond at the White House. Thank you. And joining us now is Brad Smith, vice chair and president of Microsoft, who was at the White House meeting today. Brad, thanks, thanks for joining us. So we've been covering AI and concerns about AI on the show for quite some time. The commitments agreed to at the White House today are obviously voluntary. Um, and uh, an expert on this, uh, Hani Farid, a UC Berkeley professor and artificial intelligence expert, told CNN today, quote, while I'm supportive of these efforts, the tech industry has a decades-long history of not being particularly responsible when it comes to mitigating online harms, unquote. So why should the public be assured that Microsoft and the other AI companies will be responsible and will follow through on these voluntary commitments? I think, Jake, the best way to look at this is that it's a first and big and important step in a journey, and the journey cannot end today. But let's first recognize that in just 10 weeks, the White House has brought together companies and, frankly, pushed us together and led us to create concrete commitments to ensure that AI is safe, that it's secure, that it's trustworthy, that it's transparent. And in so doing, they set a high bar, a high bar for the industry on a voluntary basis. But frankly, think of this as the first draft of what will be the laws of the future. The framework is emerging. So it's not just the industry here. It's the Congress. It's the governments of the world. This is a building block that everyone can use. So Jeffrey Hinton is often referred to as the godfather of AI. He, he came on the lead back in May. He warned about the dangers associated with AI, especially how difficult is it is to stop once it's up and running. Um, take a listen to just a, a quick part of this. It's not clear to me that we can solve this problem. Um, I believe we should put a big effort into thinking about ways to solve the problem. I don't have a solution at present. I just want people to be aware that this is a really serious problem and we need to be thinking about it very hard. I don't think we can stop the progress. I didn't sign the petition saying we should stop working on AI because if people in America stopped, people in China wouldn't. It's very hard to verify whether people are doing it. Google's CEO has also described, quote, hallucination problems, unquote, involving AI. Are you worried that companies such as Microsoft and OpenAI and others still don't even fully understand the, the Pandora's box here, what, what, what risks there actually even are? Well, I think the technology is moving quickly, and in some ways it's still at an early stage, which is why it's important to act now. But let's keep in mind two things. First, we're creating this technology because of all the good it can do. Diagnosing diseases early, creating new cures for cancer, improving education for kids. And let's be equally clear-eyed about the risks. And let's put in place the guardrails we need. We live in a world where a lightning bolt can kill someone or you can get electrocuted if a line falls, and yet we have safety. We have circuit breakers. We get on high-speed trains, we have emergency brakes. We have been doing this with technology for 150 years. So let's innovate with safety 
and innovate with the benefits this technology can create, and let's go forward together at the kind of pace that I think will really serve the public best. So you just cited some potential benefits of AI in the name of, uh, in the interest of transparency. Why don't you tell us the three things that you are most worried about when it comes to AI? Well, I think the thing I worry the most about is not what machines will do by themselves, but what people, bad actors, individuals or countries will do with this technology, that they'll use it to undermine our elections, that they will use it to you know, seek to break into our computer networks, you know, that they'll use it in ways that will undermine the security of our jobs. But the best way to solve these problems is to focus on them, to understand them, to bring people together, and to solve them. And the interesting thing about AI, in my opinion, is that when we do that, and we are determined to do that, we can use AI to defend against these problems far more effectively than we can today. A big concern, obviously, is that AI is so smart because it has been fed all of the life's work of millions of hardworking people around the world, copyrighted material in many cases. Earlier this week, more than 9,000 authors signed a letter led by the Authors Guild, that's a professional organization for writers, demanding to be compensated for their work. Part of the letter says, quote, millions of copyrighted books, articles, essays, and poetry provide the food for AI systems, endless meals for which there has been no bill, unquote. The letter was sent to the CEOs of several AI companies, including yours. Um, This is what these authors are demanding. One, permission for use of copyrighted material in generative AI programs. Two, compensate writers fairly for the past and ongoing use of their work. Three, compensate writers fairly for the use of their work in AI output, whether or not the outputs are infringing under current law. Uh, That doesn't sound unreasonable to me. What about you? I think this is an important topic. I think we need to dig into the details. But look, Jake, like you, I've written a book. As an author, I want people to read the book. I want people to learn about the book. I want them to share the ideas in the book. I want AI models to know about my book and what I wrote. And by the same token, I don't want a model to copy my book. I don't want it to undermine my ability to sell more books. I don't want it to undermine anybody's ability to make a living by creating, by writing. That is the balance that we should all want to strike. So we're going to have to come together, add this to the list of important issues we need to solve. We need to sort it out. It starts with dialogue. Dialogue sometimes start by people writing letters. And then we start to find solutions. You say you don't want to, to, to take, anybody, take away anybody's livelihoods, but aren't there, is it, aren't there people in corporate America right now just licking their chops? They're not going to have to deal with all these pesky human beings. They can just take all this copyrighted hard work, put it into AI and have the AI you know, push out scripts, books, what have you. Isn't that one of the real concerns here? Look. I can't speak for every company in the country or around the world. I can only speak for where I work at Microsoft. Look, we create technology to serve people, not to hurt people or replace people, to empower people, to defend people. That's why we get up in the morning. And yes, it turns out that people are often a little more complicated than machines, whether it's people in our family or people who work down the hall. But let's be honest, at the end of the day, that's the most rewarding thing about life. We'll keep, we'll keep that in mind. We just need to stay grounded. We've all seen uh, some incredible stuff online 
uh, Morgan Friedman, but it's not really Morgan Friedman. I am not Morgan Friedman. Showing how how easy it is with this technology to fool people with an image of Morgan Friedman and a voice that sounds like Morgan Friedman. How do we prevent this from interfering in the election with who knows what images and sound of who knows who in terms of political candidates causing all sorts of misleading episodes? Well, first, I think we need to make this a priority and we need to take concrete steps even between now and the end of this year. So we enter 2024 with some real controls in place. And I think the controls are twofold. One, we create something like cryptographic watermarking so that when a human being like you gives a real statement on a real video, it's protected and it's not possible to tamper with it. And second, we harness the power of AI to identify when someone else is using AI to create a fake, a fake say of you when you're speaking. Put those two things together and we will be in a much stronger position to use new technology. Forget about AI, just look at the world today. Let's use AI to protect against the abuses we're already grappling with, as well as the technologies that are yet to come. Brad Smith of Microsoft, thank you so much for your time, sir, appreciate it. No, thank you, see you. A very public family feud, John F. Kennedy's grandson is firing back at his cousin, who happens to be running for president, RFK Jr. Stay with us. In our politics lead, Jack Kennedy Schlossberg, a grandson of President John F. Kennedy, is harshly slamming the presidential candidacy of his cousin, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., calling his campaign for the White House an embarrassment and accusing RFK Jr., of trying to trade in on his famous name. As CNN's Eva McKend reports, Jack Kennedy Schlossberg is far from the only member of the Kennedy dynasty who has blasted recent remarks from from RFK Jr. There are other members of my family who are not here today. From the very beginning of Robert Kennedy Jr.'s campaign, there was tension. But now, the high-profile family feud has spilled out into the open. His candidacy is an embarrassment. Let's not be distracted again by somebody's vanity project. President John Kennedy's grandson, Jack Schlossberg, dismissing his uncle's long-shot bid for the White House. I've listened to him. I know him. I have no idea why anyone thinks he should be president. Schlossberg is the son of President Kennedy's daughter, Caroline, who currently serves as U.S. ambassador to Australia, He took to Instagram to praise his family's legacy and implore people to vote for President Biden. Joe Biden shares my grandfather's vision for America, that we do things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And he is in the middle of becoming the greatest progressive president we've ever had. This following a combative hearing Thursday on Capitol Hill, where Kennedy falsely claimed he never promoted anti-vaccine conspiracy theories. I've never been any vaccine, but everybody in this room probably believes that I have been, because that's the prevailing narrative. Schlossberg is not the only family member to recently dismiss Kennedy and his candidacy, after Kennedy's baseless claim that COVID-19 is targeted to attack Caucasians and black people. The people who are most immune are Ashkenazi Jews and Chinese. The response was swift, with Kerry Kennedy calling the comments deplorable and Joe Kennedy III saying they were hurtful and wrong. I'm under oath. In my entire life, I have never 
uttered a phrase that was either racist or anti-Semitic. Kennedy's testimony, contradicted by past comments, was met with condemnation by his fellow Democrats. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is a living, breathing, false flag operation. And I think in the piece we mentioned that uh, he was his uncle, but they are actually uh, cousins. Uh, But listen, Jake, yesterday, uh, the American Values 2024, they are a super PAC in support of Kennedy. They said that they raised $5 million during that congressional testimony alone. We won't be able to verify that until we see the year-end reports. But House Republicans giving Kennedy a huge platform, it seems, to raise some money. All right, Eva McCann, thanks so much. In just a few hours, Team USA will kick off their bid to try and pull off a Women's World Cup three-peat. A former member of the U.S. Women's National Team will join me live in studio next. In our sports lead, the Women's World Cup is back, and fans of Team USA will be rooting for them when they take on Vietnam in just a few hours. But the women's FIFA tournament, which has been going on since 91, has a lot of historic firsts this year. First time it's being hosted by two nations, New Zealand and Australia. The largest tournament ever, expanding to 32 teams, giving space for eight more nations to join. And the largest pool of prize money for the winner. Now it's $110 million versus $30 million in 2019. Here to talk about this and what we can expect from Team USA later tonight is former USA Women's National Team member Joanna uh, Lohman. Thank you so much for being here. So good to see you. you again. What do you make of where this tournament is now versus where where it was when it started in 1991 and even even just four years ago. Yeah, everyone should be prepared to watch the greatest World Cup ever. And when you think about the last World Cup that really made history was the 1999 Women's World Cup. This one, like you just introduced, has 32 teams instead of 24. The prize money is bigger. The pressure is bigger and it'll be the most attended sporting event in history. So it's going to be electric and exciting. And I think it's going to reintroduce women's soccer onto the global stage. 99, is that when Brandi Chastain yes. ripped off her top? That was an unbelievable celebration. <laughs> that was just so cool. It's such a celebration of women's athleticism also. So in the U.S., the men and women national teams are now paid the same. That's all thanks to the 2022 landmark equal pay agreement that was sought for years from the women's national team. But there is still a significant pay gap when it comes to the FIFA international tournament. Um, yes, it's historic that the women's prize money this year is $110 million, but... The men got $440 million just last year. Um, do you think women will ever get the same level of World Cup prize money as the men, and should they? So FIFA has grossly undervalued the women's game. And I think the U.S. women's national team, their mission to really get equal pay will put FIFA in a position where they have to recognize how much the game is growing, exponentially domestically here in the U.S. and also globally. So I think that the women's game will get to that point. We're not there yet. You have teams like Canada who are still in uh, really disputes with their federation as the World Cup is going on. It's having a ripple effect around the world that more women's teams are asking for what they deserve. And FIFA will have to pay attention and recognize. And at some point, I think we'll get to that equal payment. What else needs to change, not just internationally, but here in the U.S., for women's soccer to be treated as the dominant force that it is clearly becoming? It is a dominant force, and I'm glad you said that. I think what needs to change is the investment of resources into the women's game. We have a narrative that the women don't make as much money. We don't sell out stadiums. We don't get as many fans. Not as many people watch on television. 
So we haven't had the investment of resources that the men's game has. And you are seeing a generation of players who are incredibly talented, incredibly skillful. You'll see them at the World Cup, that they really deserve equal resources invested into their game so they can reach the potential of really being a professional athlete and show the world the level of skill and talent women possess on the field. Uh, in just a few hours, Team USA is going to take on World Cup uh, debutante Vietnam. How confident are you that the U.S. is going to win tonight? Uh, and do you think they're going to take it all again this year? I am 100% confident that the U.S. team will take the game tonight. Uh, I'm hoping it will be close to the 13-0 in which they beat Thailand in the 2019 Women's World Cup. But with so many new players, we have uh, 14 new players really debuting in this World Cup. I think it'll be an interesting introduction to see who can settle their nerves and who can, uh, I would say, set the game pace against Vietnam. And then I also have full confidence, Jake, that they're going to three-peat, make history for um, any team, men or women's, to win three World Cups in a row. So I am rooting for USA all the way. Do you worry at all about Title IX? I mean, we're seeing right now um, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruling against uh, affirmative action in college admissions, right. the U.S. Supreme Court uh, overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, and I have heard some feminist friends of mine say, Title IX is next, you know, mm-hmm. which brought women's and men's sports in, in, into a parity uh, on the college level. Do you ever worry about that? You know, I think as a queer woman in the United States, uh, I am always cognizant of how our rights can be taken away from us. So it's really important for me to consistently advocate and be an activist for queer rights and women's sports in our nation. And I think as the women's game grows, more people are understanding that we deserve a platform. Not just that, even more than deserving a platform, we really can transfix a nation, a globe, and give opportunities for young girls to achieve greatness because sport really has the power to change people's lives. And women deserve that opportunity just as much as men. And I think as the game grows, we will take that power back um, every time we have a global stage like this. And you and your wife just had a baby, I we should did. know. Congratulations. That's Shout wonderful. out to my, my wife, Melody, and Luna, who are watching us today right now. Luna, I hope she's understanding every word that we're <laughs> saying. Maybe not. Maybe not. Joanna Loman, thank you so much. Great thank to have you, you here, me. as always. The Barbie movie is proving to be a big business. It's also fraught with politics a bit. That's ahead. I'm coming with you. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Think Pink. The business of jumping on the Barbie bandwagon and how one prominent politician is trying to navigate the landmines associated with celebrating the iconic doll. Plus, Vice President Kamala Harris schedules a last-minute trip to Florida to fire back at that state's new and controversial standards for how American slavery is being taught in Florida public schools. And leading this hour, it's going to be May. Former President Donald Trump now set to go on trial in the classified documents case as early as May 20th, 2024. That means some Republican primary voters will still be weighing in on Trump's political fate as a jury considers his legal fate. This, as Trump suggests, if he were to go to prison, some of his so-called, quote, passionate supporters could make things dangerous. Let's bring in CNN's Evan Pettis. Evan, what do we know about why Judge Eileen Cannon settled on mid-May for the classified documents trial to start? Well, Jake, it appears that she was persuaded by the, ar- the arguments from the, the Trump defense team that there's a lot of litigation. There's a lot of things that they want to challenge. 
with regard to this case. Uh, obviously, it centers on, on classified information and classified documents. The former president uh, disputes that they were even classified. And so that's one of the things that she cites. I'll read you just a part of her ruling where she says the court will be faced with an extensive pretrial motion practice on a diverse number of legal and factual issues, all in connection with a 38-count indictment. And, uh, and, and Jake, you know, what we've seen already in this case is, you know, Walt Nada, the former president's uh, co-defendant, has already eaten up one month just to get arraigned, right? That just that is something that is usually very perfunctory. And they've already eaten up one month just to do that. So you can see what game, uh, what, what strategy the, the former president and his co-defendant have been playing. And it is working. The, the, the prosecution had asked for a trial in December. That seemed way aggressive, the judge said. Uh, but putting it in May really does put into the realm of possibility that uh, we are not going to get to trial before Election Day, simply because uh, just a few more delays after that, and you are now talking about a, a much later trial. What might a mid-May trial date mean for Trump uh, as the Republican frontrunner in the presidential race? Well, it means that uh, well before a jury gets to decide on the former president's fate, the voters in the vast majority of the primaries will already have made their decision. And so uh, we'll see whether that means, whether that has an impact on the electorate or not, uh, Jake. Uh, we know now, we do know that obviously the, 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 the convention is not till July of, of 2024, but a lot of the, the, the work that goes into uh, deciding the fate of the Republican nominee, that is well done before late May. All right, Evan Pettis, thank you so much. Let's discuss with our panel. We're going to discuss what the trial date means. But first, I want you to all listen to what Trump said this week uh, when asked uh, how his most ardent supporters might react uh, if he were ultimately sent to jail. I think it's a very dangerous thing to mm -hmm. even talk about okay. uh, because we do have a tremendously a passionate group of voters, much more passion than they had in 2020 and much more passion than they had in 2016. I think uh, it would be very dangerous. What's your reaction? Well, my reaction is, and it goes to something that, that Evan was talking about, which is I think the public's interest in having this trial as soon as possible is probably greater than any trial that we've probably ever heard of before. The voters need to hear this information. These are just allegations. They have the right to hear uh, what the government's evidence is and what the jury's going to decide as quickly as possible. And, you know, we have a made date now, but our hope is that it doesn't, you know, move, move any further back. What do you think? I mean, when he says much more passion than they had in 2020, I mean, we saw what happened in January 2021. Uh, that was some uh, a passion that became deadly. And I'm sure this raises alarm bells for where this ends up being held. I mean, you saw in Georgia, they're already talking about the kind of security that they're going to need if and when that um, indictment comes down. So this is going to I mean between local law enforcement, federal law enforcement, I, that has to set off alarm bells because of what happened on January 6th. I think it's inexcusable and, and reprehensible. And it drives voters who are undecided or unhappy or discouraged about Trump. And there's a lot of them in the Republican Party further away from him. And what do you think? This is vintage, vile, dangerous Trump. He doesn't learn because he wants to use this to his advantage. But the reality is, that, as you've said, we've seen it before, January 6th, the shooting in El Paso. His words matter because his supporters really are passionate and they really do listen to him. His words really matter. So the more 
at this and incites them because that's. So Trump invited him to appear before the grand jury. Um, John Lauro, the recent addition to Trump's legal team, told Fox yesterday there is no reason for Trump to appear before a federal grand jury. Is that the right move, do you think? Well, that's a, so it is a courtesy to get a card. In fact, the, the internal Department of Justice procedures encourages prosecutors to, to do exactly this, give a potential defendant the opportunity, but very few uh, individuals actually avail themselves of the opportunity. What is surprising, though, is before in the Marlago case, what we saw is the former president's attorneys reach out to the Department of Justice and make their case there. And I don't think we've seen reporting that such a meeting has happened yet. No, we haven't. Um, Jackie, the trial date's not set in stone, of course. Uh, If Trump becomes a presumptive nominee um, by the time his trial rolls around, which is certainly possible, although he and Ted Cruz were still battling it out in May Mm -hmm. of 2016, could we see the team, uh, his team, uh, try to push the date again? Potentially. And they're they're trying to push it past the 2024 election, probably in the hopes that he uh, is victorious and is able to, I mean, who knows what could happen then. That is extremely uncharted territory at this point. However, if it, uh, May Day holds, you have to imagine they're going to do what they've done through all of this. They have fundraised. They've used it as a tool to uh, gin up the base again. So they'll try to make the most of this and turn it into an advantage, whether it works um, and whether it turns off independent voters. That's the question. So uh, today, a Pence supporter uh, confronted Vice President Pence about Trump. It was really interesting. Take a listen. I would love to see you be president of the United States. I was going to give you an honest comment. Thank you. I don't believe you ever will be until the day you stand up to that man. I just believe that. I, I hope. And maybe you're too good a Christian to ever do that. Thank you for your time. Well, I don't know about too good a Christian. Some people think we did a fair amount of standing up two and a half years ago. So his response to that was some people believe we did a fair amount of standing up two and a half years ago. I I suspect that's a, a, a reference to his refusal to try to unconstitutionally, you know, overturn the election as vice president presided Under over Under enormous Senate. pressure. Yeah, tr- and, tr- definitely. And he was a good man. He did the right thing. I think if you read his book, the last chapter of his book, uh, especially, he's very critical of President Trump. He stands up to President Trump very strongly. He's not reflecting what's in his book in his campaign appearances. That, I guess, is a campaign judgment. But I'm kind of with the, the, the questioner in that, in that back and forth. Would you like to see him as president, theoretically? Yes, I'd like to see him as president more than the current president, that's for sure. <laughs> Maria, Trump's case was randomly assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon, whom Trump obviously appointed to the bench mm-hmm. in 2020. He ra- she raised eyebrows uh, for a ruling last year that favored the Trump team by allowing an outside review of documents that the FBI seized. An appeals court, a conservative appeals court, overruled her on that. Some critics questioned whether she might have a bias toward Trump. Um, what do you make of that now, given that she did not side yeah. with Trump, who wanted the trial date to be essentially never, I mean, mm-hmm. after the presidential <laughs> exactly. election. Uh, I think she probably learned from the first time that she was overturned, and hopefully she is looking at this and, and trying to be balanced, trying to not be biased. I obviously, as many people who think that Trump deserves everything that's hopefully coming to him, would rather have that done sooner rather than later, because I do think that there is a public safety issue here involved because of everything that we're talking about. And I also think that from a Republican standpoint, I don't really 
think that it matters when this trial is going to happen. I don't think for the general election this is good at all because what Trump has done and everything surrounding all of his criminality is going to continue to be front and center for the Republican primary, no matter how much all of his other opponents try to pretend to stand up to him. You, you talked about uh, how it'd be in the public's interest to have this trial be, take place as soon as possible, mm-hmm. presumably uh, so uh, before anybody votes, just to see the evidence at least, because it's all just allegations, you said. Could you not also say that about the indictment that hasn't even happened yet about the January 6th investigation, which I personally think is, is a more significant investigation uh, than the classified documents case. That seems pretty cut and dry. Uh, you either just like think he had the right to do it or not. But the January 6th investigation, what he did to overturn the election, theory, uh, allegedly, I think more important. Well, that's exactly right. And in, 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 our, in our system of justice, we have fact finders. They're called jurors. And we now have one case that's been indicted, and it seems like we're about to have another one. But until the jury, until this goes to the jury, they have to find these are still just allegations. And we won't actually get to see the government present evidence. And so whether it's the Mar-a-Lago case, whether it's January 6th, we should all, all of us potential voters, want that information. And we should get the benefit of those fact finders making a decision before we cast that vote. And that's why it's so important. And in fairness to Donald Trump, Jack Smith, who I think it's unfair to call him a partisan, um, because he has prosecuted or been part of the prosecution team against John Edwards, the Democrat, and, and Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat. But those cases didn't go well for Jack Smith and his team, and neither did his uh, prosecution of the Republican Virginia governor, uh, Bob O'Donnell. It's, which is why this should be let to play out in the justice system and not keep pushing this back and back and back. But I just wanted to um, comment on something you said, Maria. The fact that most of them aren't standing up to Trump. Of his right. Republican exactly. opponents, and they're not taking advantage <laughs> of the fact there's exactly. this potentially cornucopia of indictments mm-hmm. that are rolling out throughout this race. Will they break because of the facts in one of these? Should they come down? It, it really that that will be a, a huge moment if they do. Who's yeah. who's not a Chris Christie or an Aja Hutchinson who've already weighed in? Right. But it's a legitimate point to bring up the the overreach of the Justice Department. Uh, they don't have the best record in all cases. They're not a holier than thou. And so, yes, the prosecutor's got to make his case. Yeah. He's got to prove the facts. And, he, and I think the American people want to see that happen. And it's an open question and a legitimate concern of Republican voters to think that the Justice Department and the Biden administration is overreaching. So we're going to have more panel. Stick around. I'll come to you, I'll come <laughs> to you, you. first in the next panel, Maria. I, I promise we'll have more to discuss. Coming up, the head of the CIA has some advice for beleaguered head of the Wagner Group, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, make sure you know what you're eating, he says. Then the new fight building between the Justice Department and Texas officials over border barriers and razor wire and more. Stick around. In our world lead now, more Russian missile strikes on Ukraine's crucial port city of Odessa on the Black Sea. The Ukrainians say 21 people there have been killed over the past five days. Reuters quotes the region's governor as saying the Russians are hitting grain terminals. The United Nations today warned that the attacks on Ukraine's ability to export grain will impact global food security, which of course will especially hurt developing countries. The Russians canceled the previous deal to allow the export of Ukrainian grain earlier this week. They said they did so in retaliation for what they claim was a Ukrainian strike that damaged a key bridge to Crimea a part of Ukraine that the Russians illegally seized in 2014. 
In Moscow, Russian President Vladimir Putin is seething about the continuing flow of weapons Ukraine is getting from its allies, especially from the United States. But as CNN's Fred Plaikin reports for us now, Putin's isolation and alleged paranoia appear to be growing worse, according to experts and officials at the CIA, among others, are noticing. With Ukraine now using U.S.-supplied cluster munitions to try and penetrate the Russian army's entrenched positions on the southern front, Russian leader Vladimir Putin ripping into the U.S. and its allies for aiding Kyiv. The whole world can see that the supposedly invulnerable equipment that the West boasted about is on fire. And technically, it is often even inferior to some Soviet-made weapons. Yes, of course, additional Western armaments can be supplied and thrown into battle. This, of course, causes us certain damage and prolongs the conflict. But while Putin tries to project superiority on the battlefield, at home, the Kremlin continues to silence critical voices, even some of those supporting their war. Prominent military blogger Igor Girkin, who also goes by Igor Strelkov, arrested today, his wife said, after remarks blasting the lack of progress of Russia's military campaign in Ukraine. The situation with the special military operation and in the country in general is deplorable, to put it mildly, he said. This is a result of actions of the incumbent power. Girkin is a former colonel in Russia's security service, FSB, and was the defense minister of the so-called Donetsk People's Republic in eastern Ukraine when the Malaysian jetliner MH17 was shot down there in 2014. Girkin was found guilty of mass murder in absentia by a Dutch court for involvement in the incident, which he has never acknowledged. While Girkin is considered a war criminal in Ukraine, he deems himself a Russian ultra-nationalist who feels the war should be prosecuted even more brutally. Putin's grip on power was only recently challenged by the uprising of the Wagner private military company and its boss, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Now, the Russian leader wants to calm things down, CIA director William Burns believes. Putin is trying to buy time um, as he considers what to do with Wagner and what to do with Prigozhin himself. You know, Putin hates, in my experience anyway, the image that he's overreacting to things. But that doesn't mean Prigozhin is forgiven, Burns sure. says. If I were Prigozhin, I wouldn't fire my food taster. At that same event, Jake, the CIA director also calling Vladimir Putin the ultimate apostle of payback, which obviously could spell trouble for Yevgeny Prigozhin down the line. And if you look at Igor Gherkin, for instance, I mean, we have to keep in mind, this was one of Putin's most important figures back in 2014. Now he's in jail. He's been ordered to remain there at least uh, until at least September 18th and could face up to five years in prison for alleged extremism, Jake. All right, Fred Pleitkin, thank you so much. Also in our world lead today, the power of social media to force change and perhaps justice. In India, viral and frankly disgusting video of women being dragged naked through the streets has forced authorities to pay attention to a gang rape incident they had been ignoring. This happened in India's state of Manipur in the eastern part of the country, far from its bigger, more cosmopolitan cities. CNN's Vidika Sood has more details. Anger in the northeastern state of Manipur and across the country. In Delhi, huge crowds gathered protesting after graphic videos showing two women being sexually assaulted circulated online. 
In the 26-second horrific clip that's gone viral on social media, two women were forced to walk naked on a road, with a mob of at least three dozen men surrounding them. The women were groped and sexually assaulted. They were terrified, crying out for help, covering their bare bodies with their hands. They were led to a field where they were allegedly gang-raped. The horrific incident took place on May 4th. But police only made arrests after the video surfaced. A massive manhunt is underway for potential other suspects. The sexual assault has renewed attention on Manipur, which has been grappling with ethnic clashes since May. More than 100 people have been killed and tens of thousands displaced during violent clashes between two communities. The Cookie is a tribal group in the state and the majority Methi population. They're fighting over access to government benefits. Despite the violence, India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been silent for weeks. But the video and the national outrage over it got him to finally make a public statement. And I want to assure the countrymen that no culprit will be spared. The law, with all its might and strictness, will take steps one by one. Whatever has happened with the daughters of Manipur will never be forgiven. But the opposition wants more from the Prime Minister. And we want a discussion here on Manipur. We want a discussion and the Prime Minister has to open his mouth. Despite the Prime Minister's assurances, Manipur remains tense. Women in the state have torched the house of one suspect. And questions remain as to why it took so long for authorities to take action. It could take months for peace to return to the state. It's taken a video to wake up authorities in Manipur. There have only been a handful of arrests till now for a brutal crime committed in the first week of May. Here in Delhi, Parliament has been adjourned till Monday after House proceedings were repeatedly disrupted over the ongoing violence in Manipur. Jake? Our thanks to CNN's Vidika Sood for that report. Vice President Kamala Harris heading to Florida, taking on the state's latest education controversy. History now at the center of today's politics. Stay with us. And our politics lead, Vice President Kamala Harris, making a last-minute change to her schedule in order to go to Florida today to condemn the state's controversial new standards for how black history is taught in public schools. Among other changes, the state will now teach students, quote, how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit, unquote. CNN's Jasmine Wright is following this controversy. Jasmine, these changes, we should note, they're part of an overall package of changes to curriculum pushed by Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, who's now also running for president. What did Vice President Harris have to say about this issue? Well, Jake, she absolutely slammed Republicans, including Ron DeSantis, though she didn't mention him by name, fully waiting until these cultural war issues that the Biden administration feel will at least in some part dominate the 2024 election. So we saw her uh, not only accuse what she likes to call so-called leaders of pushing propaganda, but she also said that they were willfully misleading children about the impacts and the negative negative things about slavery, as well as other parts of American history inside of 
of this new standards. Now, the administration has been talking about issues like book bans and now the right to learn at an increasing pace over the last few months since President Biden launched his campaign for the 2024 election, really trying to show that they are on top of it as they're trying to galvanize their base voters on this issue. And that's exactly what we saw Vice President Kamala Harris do in Florida. Take a listen. We know the history. And let us not let these politicians who are trying to divide our country win. Because you see, what they are doing, what they are doing is they are creating these unnecessary debates. This is unnecessary to debate whether enslaved people benefited from slavery. Are you kidding me? Are we supposed to debate that? Now, that type of performance that we saw from the vice president, exactly why Biden administration officials are putting her in that place. They know that she is good on these issues there in her wheelhouse as a former prosecutor. And there's something that she can talk about very specifically. And they know that that has a positive impact on voters in the base like black women, young people and black voters. But also, of course, this was put together quickly for the administration, trying to show the American people that they can respond to these types of issues fast and also very seriously. Uh, Jasmine, this is the second time this week that the Biden administration has directly gone after Governor DeSantis. That's something they were not doing before, really. Yeah, Jake, two times in one week is no mistake. And it's really, we're seeing them expand in real time who is on their target list when it comes to attacks. Of course, in the past few months, we've seen the campaign really focus on President Trump and the threat that they feel that he has to democracy. But now they're widening it into these cultural issues, these hot hot ticket issues that they know really excite their base voters, including uh, really attacking Ron DeSantis, who we know is an architect of a lot of the conversations that we talk about from a day to day. Now, Vice President Harris, She's been on a tour across the country talking about these issues very clearly, really a a rights tour, talking about freedoms as trying to put really the Biden administration, her and President Biden as the last safeguard against Republicans trying to claw back at these freedoms. But I think that we're not going to stop hearing both uh, Vice President Harris and President Biden talk really in depth about this and also targeting Ron DeSantis, who is on top of a lot of these issues that come up on their day to day cultural war issues. Jake. That's right, ja- right, Jasmine. Right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We're back with our uh, panel. And Eva, l- let me just give the response from the Florida Department of Education and the DeSantis administration. Um, they're standing by uh, the, this, this assertion that slaves benefit from slavery. They're, they're noting, first of all, this is just one small part about what is being taught about slavery, which is one small part of, of an overall curriculum revamp. And they say on this one issue... Two members of Florida's African-American History Standards Work Group released a statement defending the claim, writing, quote, the intent of this particular benchmark clarification is to show that some slaves developed highly specialized trades from which they benefited. This is factual and well documented. They cite uh, n- numerous instances, including uh, you know, John Henry learning how to be a blacksmith. Governor DeSantis also directly went after Vice President Harris, tweeting, quote, Democrats like Kamala Harris have to lie about Florida's educational standards to cover for their agenda of indoctrinating students and pushing sexual topics onto children. So I suspected that this would be the response from the state. Listen, Governor DeSantis relishes this battle. It's a good thing that Vice President Harris is engaging with him in this way, and this is how I suspected that this would play out. I will say, aside from the politics, I think that we all need to sort of 
reflect that we are at a time in this country where, based on where you live and the politics of your state, you are going to learn a different set of facts about something as foundational as slavery in America. And it's just a remarkable moment that really transcends politics. Uh, uh, DeSantis also making some uh, controversial remarks about the January 6th attack on the Capitol. Take a listen. It was not an insurrection. These are people that were there to attend a rally, and then they were there to protest. Now, it devolved, and and, and it devolved into a riot, uh, but the idea that this was a plan to somehow over to overthrow the government of the United States is not true. It ended up devolving, you know, in ways that was unfortunate, of course. Uh, but to say that they were seditionists is just wrong. You know, we should note that obviously there are a lot of different people who went into the Capitol that day. Uh, more than a dozen members of the far right Proud Boys and Oath Keeper groups have been found guilty literally of sedition, of seditious conspiracy related to January 6th. Um, what do you make of it? Look, this is the latest example in um, a couple weeks ago. He was in New Hampshire and he said he wasn't there on January 6th, so he's not sure what happened. This is the latest in an example of the Florida governor trying to um, not alienate uh, Trump-based voters, if you will, as he tries to walk this very fine line through the Republican primary electorate. But it seems to me, um, you know, yes, there were people in Washington that day who did not enter the Capitol. Yes, there were people who came for a protest, as we know, but clearly the people in the Capitol, that should be like settled discussion by this point. I'm not sure what the upside for him is talking about this. But given the venue where he was at, a conservative uh, podcast, he simply you know, is, is trying to, like many others, uh, to run this obstacle course, if you will, by not alienating uh, base voters. Some of these issues, though, uh, Governor DeSantis clearly relishes. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure if he let, wants to talk about January 6th or not. He generally says, I want to look forward, not back. But... He's also out there urging Florida's pension fund, man- fund manager to consider legal action against the parent company of Bud Light because Bud Light's stock price has fallen amid all the backlash mm-hmm. uh, to its, you know, to be honest, minor partnership with a, a, a social media influencer who's trans, um, a TikTok influencer. And that would impact tens of millions of dollars the state has invested uh, in the company. Take a, take a look. We're going to be launching an inquiry uh, about Bud Light and InBev, and it could be something that leads to a derivative lawsuit uh, filed on behalf of the shareholders of the Florida uh, Pension Fund, because at the end of the day, there's got to be penalties for when you put business aside to focus on your social agenda at the expense of hardworking people. Now, somebody, somebody, an observer might say, DeSantis helped helped lead the charge to boycott Bud Light for that. Now, I mean, well, I'm a Coors Light drinker, so that's the first thing. I want to say. <laughs> yeah. So this has been good for them. Uh, but on these cultural issues, especially ones concerning school children and school curriculum, those are legitimate issues. Sure. I raised four children. My wife was the president of a local school board and for a public school system. The curriculum doesn't always get it right, and sometimes it tilts left. A lot of times it tilts left, and I think there's been a reaction in the country. To these curriculums to get more of a balance. And I think what the vice president is doing is taking out of a context the effort to do that, to find the most egregious or controversial language and blow it up. And part of the reason she's doing that is because they want to run against Donald Trump. They don't want to run against DeSantis. Oh, you think they're trying to sandbag him oh, now? Oh, DeSantis. yeah, take him down so that they want Trump. But Trump is who but they that, can but, beat. But just to play devil's advocate here, 
doesn't this help DeSantis? It elevates him. It, make, it makes it seem as had, though... Well, they, they went, out, went after him. Anytime you have bad press, anytime somebody's saying things like this, some of this has undermined his support among uh, more middle-of-the-road Republican voters. There's evidence of that in the polling, that he's lost college-educated Republicans. Yeah. Uh, he may not care about those, and this could work with him for the base. But, you know, they're attacking DeSantis because they want to run against Trump. Do you, do you think, you're, you're the Democrat here, mm-hmm. do you think that DeSantis would be tougher to beat than Trump for Biden? I, I don't. And I know that really? there, there might be people who disagree with me, but I don't because of what he's doing. He is so outside of the mainstream, Jake, that aside from how vile it is what he's doing, especially in terms of what he's trying to change in terms of black history, and the vice president is right, but it's not just unnecessary, it's dangerous what he's doing to insinuate that there was anything positive about the most heinous crime against humanity that has occurred um, in history. I, I, I think he, it makes him a historical Neanderthal. And I think that because of that, because of everything else that he's doing, because he's so obsessed going against the woke agenda, the leftist agenda... He's not doing anything for the American people. He's not doing anything that is helping American families live a better life. He's not doing anything to help kids try to figure out a better future. I would absolutely love to run against that. Final word. The AI scholars just released a report today that showed that among those who, uh, Republican voters who don't like Trump and don't like Biden, uh, when they, it's, it's Trump, it's DeSantis versus Biden, DeSantis wins big. When it's Biden versus Trump, Biden. Biden wins big. Interesting. The thanks. generational thing is one of the reasons. For yeah, that. absolutely. Uh, thanks to one and all for being here. Um, the federal government says it plans to take legal action against Texas over these floating border barriers. Why the Biden administration says the barriers are making the border crisis worse. That's next. Internationally, the Department of Justice has told the state of Texas it plans legal action against the use of these floating barriers in the Rio Grande River. In a letter to Governor Greg Abbott, prosecutors state that the floating barriers violate federal law and and raise serious humanitarian concerns. This, of course, is separate from the Department of Justice looking into, quote, troubling reports from Ranger medics about treatment of migrants crossing the border, including orders to push migrants back into the Rio Grande River, plus disturbing instances such as an allegation that a 19-year-old woman was trapped in wire while having a miscarriage. CNN's Priscilla Alvarez joins me live in studio. Priscilla, um, what did the Justice Department state in this letter? Simply put, they didn't have authorization to put the floating barriers in the Rio Grande, and the Justice Department is citing a clause of the law to that effect. But the humanitarian concerns is important here, and they go on to say in the letter, I'm going to read this part to you, the state of Texas actions violate federal law, raise humanitarian concerns, present serious risks to public safety and the environment, and may interfere with the federal government's ability to carry out its official duties. This is an escalation in the feud between Texas Governor Greg Abbott and President Biden over the handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. Sources I've talked to said there were internal discussions for months within the Department of Homeland Security and the Justice Department to take some action against Texas, but they had never reached the point to do so. We're seeing that play out this week with that letter to Texas Governor Abbott just yesterday. And we should also note To your point, this is unrelated to the mistreatment of migrants. That is an ongoing assessment by the Justice Department. But there is a connection here because these are barriers that pose a potential drowning risk to migrants and that there are accounts of migrants getting stuck and getting hurt in these barriers. 
The White House saying in a statement just moments ago, it is cruel and it is dangerous. How has the state of Texas responded to this? Well, in a tweet, the governor said that sovereign authority, it is their sovereign authority to defend our border. So they are staying firm on their position to put floating barriers in the river. Now, the Justice Department did give the state until Monday afternoon to respond to their letter. If they don't, they are prepared to take Texas to court over this issue. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, uh, fascinating and depressing story. I appreciate it. Coming up, living in a doll's world, the complex business of Barbie has everyone seeing pink. Yeah, they're also staring at me. Hey, Barbie. Can I come to your house tonight? Sure. I don't have anything big planned, just a giant blowout party with all the Barbies and plant choreography and a bespoke song. You should stop by. So cool. If you're seeing a lot of pink today, you're not alone. Barbie Mania has taken over as the new Barbie film directed by the great Greta Gerwig and distributed by CNN's parent company, Warner Brothers Discovery, opens in theaters across the country. CNN's Sarah Seidner sat down with the stars of the movie Margot Robbie and America Ferreira and asked a a question the movie poses to the audience. Everyone makes Barbie into who they think she is because she doesn't talk, she doesn't walk. So we use our imaginations. How did you decide who Barbie was going to be in this film? To be honest, Greta knew from the beginning, really, that she wanted Barbie to have the classic hero's journey. Um, She actually used, like, Buddha's journey to enlightenment as a reference, and I was like, okay, wow, I didn't see that coming, but now that you've said it, it does make perfect sense. Um, And so so suddenly she did have, like, this framework of a narrative, and within that we could have all these conversations on so many different levels. And and what we wanted to do about with those conversations is, kind of honor the legacy that the 64 years of Barbie has, you know, created, you know, and, and also bring it into today's day, you know, have our, have culturally relevant conversations. Not surprisingly, Barbie is also entering political conversations with Republican Senate committee, man, uh, committee making uh, memes of prominent Democrats, such as Nancy Pelosi and Joe Barden, Biden as Barbies. Uh, In Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer capitalizing on Barbie's popularity, sharing her favorite color. CNN's Vanessa Yurkiewicz takes a look now at the political business of Barbie. Barbie mania. Barbie curious fans strutting into theaters on opening day in what could be one of the biggest box office weekends since the pandemic. It's a love story. Barbie can be a polarizing figure. I think the most interesting thing about Barbie is that she is a conduit for interesting conversation and controversy. Author Tanya Lee Stone says some see Barbie as a feminist icon, while others see her as sending the wrong message to women. There were just as many people sending me stories about how Barbie made them feel less than or inferior or gave them body image issues, as there were people who felt that she was empowering to them. Even some of the movie's stars didn't see Barbie as influential at first. I was not a Barbie girl. But the new movie puts Barbie in the real world. You have to go to the real world. With real problems, an identity crisis. Barbie in the real world, that's impossible. 
And President Barbie is the first female president. Turn to the Barbie next to you. Tell her how much you love her. President Barbie has been around since 1992, but she wasn't always embraced. Here she is on SNL in 2016, the first time a woman claimed a party nomination for president. The first Barbie commander-in-chief. Oh, neat. Now, seven years later, Barbie is back in the political arena and being celebrated. Here's Lil Gretch, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's lookalike Barbie, driving in front of the state capitol in a made-in-Michigan pink convertible. Hi, Barbie. She's signing legislation, talking battery manufacturing and infrastructure. Barbie's been an icon, tweeted Whitmer, and a reminder that it's so important to support one another and create systems that allow more people to achieve their own dreams, no matter who they are, what they look like, or what they wear. Let's keep fighting for that dream world. And here outside of AMC Theater in New York City, no lines yet, Jake, but shows are playing every half hour to hour. But we have seen a lot of Barbie core pink, people in bright pink, light pink, heading into the theater. I spoke to two young girls who had just seen the movie. They said that they were surprised by how much Barbie was about women's empowerment. They loved it. They thought it gave Barbie a deeper experience. And it also, Jake, deepened their love for Barbie. And Vanessa, we should know Barbie is not the only really big summer movie opening uh, right now. Uh, Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer also is debuting this weekend. Yeah, it's the double showing. It's being called Barbieheimer. I actually just ran into a woman who was dressed as Barbie. Her boyfriend was dressed as Oppenheimer, and they had just gotten out of the Barbie show. They were taking a little intermission, and they were then heading in to see Oppenheimer. We know a lot of friends and couples are doing this, and that's why people are expecting this to be such a big weekend with the double feature of Barbie and Oppenheimer. But, Jake, that is over four hours plus of movie going. But, hey, it's the weekend. Maybe people have time for that, Jake. Right. I mean, I, for some reason, I have the image of a very pink mushroom cloud. Vanessa Yurkiewicz, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Still ahead, <laughs> celebrating the legacy and legend of Tony Bennett, Harry Connick Jr. and Michael Buble share how the singer inspired them. That's ahead. In our national lead today, President Biden selected Admiral Lisa Franchetti to be the new top officer of the U.S. Navy. If confirmed, Admiral Franchetti would be the first woman in the Navy's history to hold the job and the first woman in the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Admiral Franchetti has served in the Navy for more than 38 years and is the current vice chief of naval operations. However, she will likely join a growing group of senior officers who will have to wait for their confirmation as Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville has continued his hold on senior military nominations because he opposes the Pentagon's policies when it comes to travel to get abortions. I have a brand new thriller on sale right now. It's called All the Demons Are Here. A wild ride through a bizarre era for our nation, the 1970s, with Evil Knievel and the death of Elvis, post-Watergate mistrust, cults, disco, the summer of Sam, UFOs, and much more. I would be honored if you would check it out. You can get it in bookstores now. Makes a good summer read, one would think. Be sure to tune in this Sunday to State of the Union. My colleague, Dana Bash, will talk to Republican presidential candidate and former Vice President Mike Pence, Democratic Congresswoman and former Speaker Nancy Pelosi, the governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, and the governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, to 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. Until then, you can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite, the TikTok, I'm back on it. 
at Jake Tapper, or you can tweet the show at the lead scene. And our coverage continues now with Jim Acosta. He's in for Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the Situation Room. See you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.